So, um, let's see. I just wanted to acknowledge we had a we had a lovely day long yesterday, and I just wanted to uh, appreciate the people who were there. Um, somebody came up and said how great the day long was, and it was a good talk. And I said, "Oh, great! I'm glad you liked it. I hope you'll like it again tonight." <laughs> <laughs> So it won't be the same now because I can't even remember exactly what I said yesterday. But, um, but I will begin with the same quote, which is from Henry Miller. Henry Miller is a, was an author, writer who, kind of in a, somewhere right after World War II, he kind of dropped out. He somewhere around 1950, he was working at the Acme Messenger Company in New York and living a kind of halfway normal life. And he um, he dropped out and went to Paris and lived more of a kind of a hedonist, renunciate life. He's one of the few people I know who really managed to put those two together. And, um, and then it, later in life came back to the States and ended up here in uh, California in Big Sur and died in Big Sur. Um, and he said something very interesting. He said, I know what the greatest cure is. It is to give up, to let go, to relinquish, to surrender, so that our little hearts may beat in unison with the great heart of the world. And he's pointing at something that the Buddha pointed at many, many times in many, many ways. He's pointing at the freedom that comes and the connection that comes when we let go, when we don't hold on, when we aren't caught in uh, clinging, the Buddha's word that he would use, clinging which he used to describe both grasping and pushing away of reality, the gr attempting to grasp at things, hold on to things, keep things but also attempting to push them away, deny them, separate. And our day yesterday, the day we spent sitting and walking, was a day to practice letting go, to practice relinquishment, to practice um, being with things as they are and not, having to, not trying to keep them or fix them or make them a certain way, not trying to push them away or deny them in any way, but finding the capacity, the capacity of mind and heart that is able to be with things as they are, that is able to rest in the present moment, that is able to discover or realize the freedom that the Buddha pointed to when he talked about letting go or letting be. And the, the Buddha summed it up very simply. He said, I teach one thing. I teach suffering and the end of suffering. Suffering and the end of suffering, or suffering and freedom from suffering. And he would teach in many ways. He would often give discourses or talks or have kind of inquiries and investigations with people about reality, about their experience. And often people would wake up just from being in interaction with the Buddha. Unfortunately, Buddha's not here <laughs> in that way. 
And so for the rest of us, he gave meditation instructions. And, the, and so I'd like to talk a little tonight about the meditation, about our practice, about how we pay attention, how we attend to reality, how we attend to the present moment, um, as both a skill and an art that is developed to learn how to let go in order to realize freedom. And I like the metaphor, I like using the um, performing or creative arts as a way to begin to look at the contemplative art of meditation practice. Because there's a lot of qualities that overlap. There's a lot of capacities that if you, if you have ever um, studied dance or studied theater or studied, if you're a painter or a writer or, or if you've been really uh, involved with the art of um, gardening or the art of scholarship, it's really any, it's the art of any um, um, activity that we learn how to give ourselves to very fully that we take on as a discipline, and discipline meaning we become a disciple of that art. That art becomes a training for us, a learning for us. Remember, discipline always had to do originally with learning. Um, only later did it have to do with um, some kind of authority. Um, and so, and the Buddha himself would also often use craft or crafts or the arts as metaphors to talk about practice. And so he would talk about the, the uh, goldsmith, the art of working with gold, of purifying gold, of clarifying gold so that it becomes soft and malleable and pure and clear and shining. And, that, and then you, you take the gold, you can make something beautiful out of it. And he would talk about meditation as a very similar kind of practice as a way to begin to uh, purify, clarify the heart and mind so that we can use it to turn towards freedom. We can use it to see what, what is clinging. What, what does it mean to let go? What's the value of letting go? Why would we want to let go? And then to see how, how letting go happens. How letting go functions as a natural result of the meditative process not even so much as something we do necessarily. And he would use the example of like sharpening a knife, the kind of skills it takes to use to sharpen a knife, the patience that it takes and the calm or the evenness, the, the equanimity it takes to get the knife just right. You don't want to overdo it or underdo it. Or the metaphor of um, um, tuning an instrument. And that, it, as, as a metaphor for right effort in the meditative process, that one doesn't want to be too tight, too tense, just like you don't want to tighten the lute too tight, it'll, the string will break at a certain point, or the guitar. Or, but if it's too loose, if it's too lax, if it's too relaxed, you fall asleep. And that's not the goal. The goal is to wake up. Although it's actually, but, but to be relaxed and awake, that sense of balance, that sense of t 
tuning ourselves, learning how to tune, and that tuning being, you ever see a, a, good, a good musician will tune right in the middle of a song. And it's very relaxed. It's not like they get uptight. They just, you know, they'll be playing and they'll, on a violin maybe, and they'll just tune a little bit. And it's the same in the meditative process. Actually, if, if we were to really look closely at our practice, and when, our, when we're awake to our practice, we're tuning a little bit as we sit here. Oh, we're, we're, we're working with the breath a little more refinely, or we're opening to the sound, or we're noticing that we're thinking, and so then we're tuning to be awake to what's happening now. And I hope you can hear um, that as I'm talking, even though I'm talking mostly about mindfulness, right? There's a lot of other qualities that are implicit in the meditative process. Tuning itself, balance. Balance is a very important quality that we develop in the meditative process. Or um, relaxing is a very important part of the meditative process. Energy is a very important part of the process. And of course, if you sit like for a day, it's very clear that kindness is a very important part of the meditative process because part of what we'll see in a day of sitting, or actually even in 45 minutes of sitting, is we'll see dukkha, we'll see suffering, we'll see disease, we'll see distress or stress. And so as part of learning how to let that come and let that go, we need to be actually kind to ourselves. If we're harsh, it won't work. It's, it's too painful, actually. And so as we study, as we pay attention to the skill of meditation, of developing the skill, we'll also learn a number of techniques, ways to be mindful, to open to hearing, which we started with a little bit tonight, is a really skillful way to learn how to bring some spaciousness into your mindfulness. And even now, if you so much don't think about the talk, but just be aware of sound. Notice how open the awareness is. Notice how spacious the mindfulness is. If you just notice the sounds arising, some are loud, like my voice right now. Some are quick, like the cough. Some are more smooth, like the cars. But they simply appear and they're known within the space of mindfulness. So this is a little, this is part of the mindfulness practice, but it also brings specific quality of spaciousness to the mindfulness. Or if we start to note our practice, name our, do the labeling. How many people know the noting, wait, wait, how many people don't know the noting practice? I just want to see, labeling practice. Okay, so there's a practice, part of the Vipassana, practice that you can do when you're sitting is you can name or label or acknowledge in a very quiet voice in your mind what's happening as it's happening. 
So as you're breathing, you could note in, out, rising, falling, breathing, breathing, as a way to begin to bring body and mind together, as a way to tether the discursive mind, the mind that wants to talk about everything, wants to think about everything, wants to um, add on to experience, to use that voice in the service of staying present in the moment now with exactly what's happening here. And this is like any, any art, any skill that we develop. There'll be a number of techniques within that skill, a number of different tricks, if, if you would like to use that term, about how to, how to be more refined and more graceful and more artistic within the skill. Probably the most important thing, if you want to be a painter, or if you want to be a writer, or if you want to be a musician, the most important thing is to paint, or to write, or to play music. Any art will ask for you to practice. And whether it's formally called practice or it's just called playing, either way, we have to do it. You know, one of the things I like to say about meditation is if you don't do it, it won't work. Is everybody clear on that? <laughs> it's a great idea, right? A lot of people like the idea. But like any art, part of the discipline is to actually get ourselves to do the art so that we learn the art from the inside. We learn the skill from the inside. You know, and, and even, and this is true, and, and the, the importance of um, continuing even for people who've done it a long time is that like any art, the contemplative arts are, um, there's no limit. There's no end to the learning, to the discovery, to the development, to the maturation, to the fruition of an art. An artist doesn't stop learning. You know, if you think of any of the great artists, they never stop learning. They never stop playing. It's not like, okay, they, they did it and then they're done. You know, Casals, Pablo Casals, the great cellist, he never, he, every day he would play Bach, he said every day it was new. Because, of course, he knew, he was aware of something that's true and that meditation can also point it, us to, which is every moment is new. And that when we start to pay attention in a more refined way, that when our chatter starts to die down and our ideas and our beliefs and our opinions and our views and we actually start to get here in the moment, then we start to feel the freshness of what's alive here, what's alive right now, even within what feels unalive. So it could be the freshness of our boredom or the freshness of our irritation or whatever it might be. It's actually alive now. 
And when we say, oh, I felt this or I experienced something a thousand times, we're actually putting a wall between us and the experience right now. It may be true we've experienced anger or fear or whatever it is, happiness a million times. But those, those million times are gone. And all that's actually here is what's happening now. And so the emphasis in our practice, in the meditative practice, in the contemplative art, is to first learn how to get here and be here and find our ground, find our center, find our composure with the experience of life so we can begin to study life. We can begin to learn, in some sense, the art of living in a way we haven't been trained. And most of us are not trained in this. And, and the Buddha often talked about practice as a training or a retraining of the heart and mind. We've had certain kind of training. We've had the training to think. We're good at that, to be logical or analytic or practical. Um, and those are all good skills. But we may not have had the training to be mindful to be body full, to be heart full, to be fully present, to be fully awake to the moment, all the senses alive, all the senses awake, and to learn how to find our center within this life that's here, that's sitting here, to find our ground, and to begin to use that, um, use the development of that art to begin to look very directly at the nature of reality. To look very directly at what is it to be a human being? What is it to be alive in this moment? And so the Buddha, when he talked about this, he used the metaphor of letting go um, very much connected to freedom. In some ways, they're almost indistinguishable. Learning to let go and freedom. This is from the Tao, from Lao Tzu. Colors, he writes, colors blind the eye, sounds deafen the ear, flavors numb the taste, thoughts weaken the brain, the mind he has, desires wither the heart. The master observes the world but trusts her inner vision. She allows things to come and go. Her heart is open like the sky. That if we haven't trained in some fashion, then we will be enchanted by the sights and sounds and tastes and touch and feelings and thoughts. And we will take that to be the whole of reality. And we will not yet have discovered that there is something more, something that is aware of the sights, aware of the sounds, aware of the tastes, aware of the feelings, the thoughts, but is not bound by them. It's not exactly as this, of the same order as the sensory input itself. And so even now, you could experiment. Just notice 
what you're aware of, like maybe you're aware of the talk, or maybe you're aware of your body's tired, or maybe you're aware of feeling bored, or maybe you're aware of feeling confused or interested. And then notice what's aware. What's being aware of that sight, sound, taste, touch? Where is that awareness? And if the awareness is not the same as the sight, not the same as the sound, it might not be bound by it. It might not have to be enchanted by it. It may know the sights, the sounds, the taste, touch. Even be able to totally enjoy the input. Enjoy the feelings. Enjoy the thoughts. But not be bound by them. We tend to totally identify with what we see, hear, feel, taste, touch. What if we let go of whatever's here for a moment. Here, let's try this for a second. Just shut your eyes and let go of everything. Don't hold on to anything for a moment. Just for a moment. And then you can come back and hold on to everything if you want. So, so there may be thoughts, but don't hold on to them. Let them go or feelings, let them go. Or sounds, let the sounds come and go. And actually, let, let the feelings come, or let the thoughts come, and let them go both. And while you're doing that, I'll read you the words of the Buddha, who said, Actually, it's a commentary on the Buddha by Tanisaro Bhikkhu. He says, The Buddha's choice of the word nibbana or nirvana, which literally, and nirvana is the, is the word for awakening. He says, which literally means extinguishing of fire, derives from the way the physics of fire was viewed during the life of the Buddha in his time, place, and culture. As fire burned, it was seen as clinging to its fuel in a state of entrapment and agitation. When it went out, it let go of its fuel, growing calm and free. Thus, when the Indians of this time saw a fire going out, they did not feel they were watching its extinction Rather, they were seeing a metaphorical lesson in how freedom could be attained by letting go. So how is it to let everything come and go for a minute? Anybody want to comment? Pardon? Peaceful. Fresh. Pardon? Open. Okay. So you can keep letting things come and go. I'll keep talking. Let, let my voice come and go if you want. 
So the Buddha was pointing here at fire. You know how fire burns and crackles and jumps and flares? He was using it as a metaphor for our attachment to things. That there's an agitation, a disturbance, a distress. And that when it let go, what it let go of was the source of that. The source of the agitation. Now, one of the qualities that we're going to develop as we practice mindfulness, in addition to compassion and patience and a sense of energy, is discernment. That as the mind and heart starts to relax, starts to open, starts to clarify, we will actually be able to see clearly, to see more uh, acutely into the nature of things into the nature of our experience, into what's happening now. And this discernment is really important to, to look at what is letting go, what does that mean, what, what isn't it, and what's its value. And so I want to say a few things about what letting go isn't first. Letting go, at least in my definition, is not detachment. It's not this. It's not like, oh, all of a sudden I'm you know, going to move this away, push this away, get rid of this. It's not detachment. It's not, it's not dissociating from our experience and then we let go. There's a way sometimes people do that in meditation. And, and maybe it's okay for a little while, but, it, but ultimately what will happen is you, there'll be a, a sterileness to the meditation if we always have to detach or dissociate in some way with our feelings, with our sensations, with the sounds, with whatever it might be. The other way to go is to bring things closer, to actually begin to embrace our experience, to say yes to our experience to say, okay, I'm going to be here, I'm going to, I'm going to see what this experience is by staying present and see what happens and then discover how experience comes by letting it come and it goes by letting it come and letting it go because that's its nature. Has anybody here has anybody here seen anything they can actually hold on to? People, places, things, states of mind, heart? Is there anything we can actually hold on to? Part of what is suggested here by learning how to, quote, let go, is that we're learning how to come into alignment with reality as it is. And by coming into alignment or coming into harmony with reality, there is a tremendous freedom possible. That the suffering we experience, much of the suffering we experience, is being in contention with the way things are. Is not actually opening or acknowledging or being honest or being objective about human reality. 
human life is characterized by the fact there's no nothing we can hold on to. Now, I don't mean to disturb anybody by saying that, it's, and I hope it doesn't disturb you, because it's true. And so you don't have to worry about it, because it's always been true. So you don't need to get nervous now, if you weren't nervous a few minutes ago. It wouldn't make sense. Although sometimes it feels disturbing. One of the paradoxes of practice is that actually we want to move closer to our experience. We want to be more sensitive to our experience. And sensitive here means not only sensitive in terms of the sensations of the body, but sensitive to our hearts. Sensitive actually to our mind that there's a level of um, there's a capacity of consciousness as it begins to calm and collect and get a little more composed and a little less scattered that as it begins to relax and calm down that part of the nature of the mind nature of consciousness is that it is sensitive we are sensate beings and this sensitivity then we can as like the goldsmith we can make beautiful things out of it we can use the beauty of our consciousness to be sensitive to the whole human experience and to know it not just as an idea but through direct contact with our experience through the mind's direct contact both with the physical experience and the emotional experience and the mental experience you can actually feel when your mind is tight or when it's relaxed or when it's when it's concentrated or when it's agitated it's actually a felt, there's a felt sense on different levels the grosser felt sense is just the body and it's a great place to start but the felt sense of an emotion you can feel that you can feel the, the fear is not just it's not just an abstract idea and it's not just an idea in itself we actually feel it's a whole affect affect implies sensitivity a sense related experience and paradoxically we want to move closer and closer to our direct and immediate experience because that will facilitate not even, it won't even facilitate letting go it does then it doesn't block the movement of reality and the movement of reality is nothing stays everything changes nothing is static reality is not static I, I love that idea. Reality is not static. You know, and if it's not static, stasis. It's ecstasis. It's ecstasy means ecstatic, not static. And we seek this. We seek it because we know it's, it's, it's how we are. It's who we are. It's what we are. We're not static in any way, shape, or form. It's why each moment is fresh, is new, is alive. If we're in touch, if we're awake, like Casals. Now sometimes people hear this and they say, well, why would I want to move towards suffering? Why would I, why would I want to feel my fear or my heartache or my grief or my or the pain of my body, or whatever it might be, or the existential 
angst of, of being a human being. The existential um, emptiness, different than Buddhist emptiness. I want to be careful about that. But that existential sense of some kind of loss of ground that we experience as human beings. Why would I want to move closer to that? This is from one of my teachers, Hamid Ali, who really ties together um, um, that the suffering is an indicator, that it points us at something that we're seeking. It points us at what we're missing about why we practice. So I'll say a little more. Hamid, he says, the more we are in touch with ourselves, the more we feel our innate desire to know and to be who we really are, then we want the freedom to live as we're supposed to live, to fulfill our potential. And of course, the potential for human beings may be limitless. He says, to fill our potential. When we don't, we suffer. But that suffering is simply a hunger for our true selves to live, to be free. It is a signal that we want to return to our true nature. And so the suffering is an indicator. It's an indicator of a barrier or something covering or obscuring really what we seek. Our, our nature, our Buddha nature, whatever words you want to use, enlightenment, liberation, freedom, maturity, whatever words work for you, wholeness. And so the suffering's not a bad thing, but it's why we want to move towards it because it... it as they say in, in the tantric traditions, if it's in the way, it is the way. If it's in the way, it is the way. And it's the beauty of this understanding of suffering then, because then we don't have to judge our suffering. Then we don't have to push away our suffering. Then we can begin to draw our suffering towards us because it is the way that if we can find our presence, our composure, our wakefulness with the suffering, the suffering, it's what's needed for the suffering to begin to release, to let go. Robert Frost said, the best way out is always through. The best way out is always through. We're not going to do a spiritual bypass. Sorry. I mean, we, everybody wants that. We all want that somewhere. We just think, okay, I'm going to come and I'm going to meditate and then I won't deal with all this yucky stuff. I mean, actually, if I thought it worked, I would teach it. And, and um, I mean, I don't have any pride that way at all. But, um, but what I've seen is it, it'll work and then that yucky stuff will come and bite you in the rear at some point. It'll come and show itself because it, it has life within it, because it's alive. And we don't have to be so afraid of it. And part of the training of mindfulness is learning the skills, learning the different techniques, learning the capacities, developing the art of being with things that are very difficult, which is, and what's the most difficult? Being a human being. <laughs> Anybody notice? It's, it's difficult. It takes some training to learn how to be with this experience. And we, we just haven't had such great training. At least I didn't get it in my elementary school or junior high particularly. 
And here's another paradox that's part of this training, is that as we turn towards suffering, we don't even want to let go too soon. There's a, there's a kind of foe turning towards suffering. Like, okay, I'm going to turn towards the suffering so it'll let go. That doesn't really work. The suffering knows. It knows your attitude. And if you're not really going to open to it, it's going to stick around. But there's, some, there's a greater value here is that it's true, we want to be free. But it's also that we love the truth, or we respect the Dharma. Dharma is translated as truth. And we want to realize the Dharma, realize the truth. And so turning towards our suffering, and especially it'll be, you know, it'll be, you know, if you sit for, usually for 10 minutes and, you, and then you sit for 45, it'll start to give you a taste of that. Or if you sit once a day and you've never sat a day long and you come sit for a day long, you'll learn some more about taking some time with whatever's difficult. Or if you sit, you've done a day long and you come sit a week, you'll say, oh, it's really nice to have a, a great amount of time. So there's no rush. Remember, patience is one of the qualities we're cultivating. And so turning towards the suffering and not moving too, not trying to get rid of it too quickly becomes part of the art and the skill of practice. Like really studying the self, studying the ways we suffer, studying the identification, studying the fear, studying what is anger, really. Let's, let's forget the word, what is it? And what happens when we learn to find our capacity to sit in the middle of it and allow it fully without identifying with it? We learn a lot about anger. And so we don't, want to, we don't want to let go too soon, partly because the letting go won't have the depth than if we really have found our capacity to be with our experience. And so, okay, I let go of my anger and then it pops back a minute later. I'm going to let go of it and then it pops back again. I'm not going to let go and it pops back again. But if I really take my time with all of it, and I really see it, and I really touch it, and I really taste it, and I really know it in a very full way, and in a way where I begin to digest or metabolize the experience, then when it goes, I know what that is. There's some real understanding here now with the experience. And I know how to be with it, and I know how to let it come and let it go in a very full way, not in a superficial way. Although, you know, and I want to be careful here. Superficial's okay for a while. That's fine. Do even do that's better than no letting go at all. This is from a, a teacher in India, Devi. Student says to her, I've had trouble letting go. She says, That's normal. Everybody wants to let go, but how do you let go if you don't hold things? If you don't touch things in full consciousness? with a totally open heart. The first thing is to have the experience of touch, of profound contact with things, with the universe, without mental commotion. Everything begins there. Thank you, and whoever's shutting the door. Um, everything begins there, touching the universe deeply. 
And of course, in Buddhism, the universe is considered found right here. In this fathom-long body, you will find the whole universe. So she says, she says, the first thing is having the experience of touch, of profound contact with things, with the universe, without mental commotion. Everything begins there, touching the universe deeply. If you let go before touching deeply, that can bring on mental turmoil. Many beginning practitioners make this mistake. They let go before taking hold. The heart is never opened. They enter into a sterile void and remain imprisoned. When you touch deeply, you no longer need to let go. That occurs naturally. This is a beautiful understanding of letting go. That we don't have to do it if and, and that actually opening to things fully is a form of letting go. We're, we're, we're letting go of all our holding. We let things totally move through us so that we let them come and we let them go. And so everything can just come and go. And then we become the space for reality. We become the vehicle for the Dharma to reveal itself right here as we learn the skill and the art of letting go. And even, even the most traditional teacher that I've practiced with, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, would say the same thing. Tanisaro Bhikkhu would say the same thing when I was working with him a few months ago and we were talking about certain energy came and certain anger came and all this, all this um, fury came and libidinal energy came and at some point I said to him, well, it's all this energy and, and I'm just letting it happen, Tan Jeff. And he said, good, good, you want to let that come, you want to let that happen, you don't want to repress it, you don't want to stop that, and you don't want to hold on to it. There's the art. There's the art. It's sometimes described as the razor's edge in spiritual practice. Not denying, not pushing away, not averting from the experience, and not grasping, not holding on, not clinging to experience. Learning learning how to use our heart and mind so that we can be aware and in contact, open, fully in touch, and let everything come and go. And then the Buddha used this beautiful um, line in the teachings on mindfulness when he talked about mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of being of the breath or the posture of, of sound. He would always add this insight afterwards, after the instruction about how to be mindful, he would, he would add the insight. And the key phrase in the insight, the last line would be, and the practitioner, let's see if I can remember it, the practitioner uh, uh, abides independent, not clinging to anything in this world. The practitioner abides independent, not clinging to anything in this world. And this is a radical independence. This is not an independence that's by being separate from anything. This is by seeing that we're the vehicle, we're the medium through which everything arises and passes. And we don't need to cling to it, partly because we can't cling to it. So here's another way we could understand this movement from Wendell Berry, the poet. He said, I go among trees and sit still. 
all my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles in water. My tasks lie in their place where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then, I, then, then what I am afraid of comes. What I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it. The fear of it leaves me. It sings and I hear its song. This is one of the possibilities of our practice is learn, learning, learning the skill and art so we can hear the song in every part of our life, every part of human experience. No part left out as the great Japanese woman poet said on her enlightenment. No part left out. Azumi Shikibu. And so we learn to find our composure with our suffering, with the difficulties, with the travails of human life. And what a relief. Now we don't have to get rid of human life. Now we don't have to think we've made a mistake because there is suffering, but because suffering is just part of human life. In the Taoist tradition, they say there's you know 10,000 joys and sorrows. I always figure it's about 50, hopefully it's 50-50. You know, that, I'm happy with that. The other paradox, though, is that we want to learn to find our composure with what's beautiful in life, with what's good in life, with what's rich in life, with what's satisfying in life, with what's delightful in life, with you know what we love about life. To learn to find our composure with our joy and our happiness and our ecstasy, with our lack of stasis without holding on to it. And it's, it's summed up quite simply by William Blake who said, he who, fi- he who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. That's the whole Dharma. He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. It's a, it's a beautiful eternity sunrise, the eternal sunrise, the eternal now, this eternal moment of now. The freedom that's here when we learn how to let everything come and go as is its nature, as we come into alignment with the Dharma, as we become a vehicle or a manifestation or a realization of the Dharma itself. And it's very simple, actually. It's just now. It may be the hardest part is how simple it is. We're so used to adding on to reality, to conceptualizing it, to commenting about it, to talking about it to ourselves, to refining it, redefining it over and over again. See if you could take the inner mute for a moment. Just click on the inner mute and just pay attention to what's actually here now if we don't talk about it for a moment. 
There's a sound. There's a sensation. There's a feeling. There's a thought. Without going into the content of the thought, just the process of thought. The movement or the the freedom that comes is the freedom to be. Just this. And it's fresh, direct simplicity. This consciousness, this wakefulness that's here already. That knows all things but is not bound by them. R.H. Blythe, who began his Zen practice in, in a Japanese prison camp in World War II. He said, think of Zen, of the void, of good and evil, and you are bound hand and foot. Pay attention only and entirely and completely of what you are doing at the moment, and you are free as a bird. It's just this. And it's hard for us just this because we're so used to complexity. We so imagine enlightenment as being some big deal. Some big thing's going to happen and then, wow, won't everybody see how enlightened I am? You know, that's a look ma no self thing. <laughs> but part of what, what the Dharma points to and describes is what's called the thusness of things or the isness of a moment. Just the simplicity of a moment without anything added on. Just now. Just this breath. I'll end with... Uh, I'm not sure what I'm going to end with. Hmm. I'll end with um, Bahia. Bahia is a fellow who was a practitioner, heard that there was a Buddha. In mythological time, went across, in one day, he went across the Indian continent to find the Buddha. He had a lot of passion for practice, Bahia. I like him that way. And he finds the Buddha who's gone on his walk for alms rounds, right? For his food, for his lunch, the Buddha. And he goes up to the Buddha immediately and says, you know, teach me the Dharma, Sugata. And, you know, here he is. He's got the Buddha, finally. He's going to get the teaching. And the Buddha says, no, it's time for lunch. It's not, it's not appropriate. And of course, you know, if you're a monk, you have to eat by a certain time. And you're usually, the monks are aware of what time that is. They, they want to, you know, because they can't eat after noon. So the Buddha's going to eat and, you know, there's Bahia. He's traveled 500 miles or a few thousand miles in, in one day. And he, now he's not getting the teachings. So, he, uh, so he's persistent, which is a good thing in the Dharma. It's good persistence. Resolve is the quality that we develop, a certain kind of resolve. And, and Bahia has this. And he says, teach me the Dharma, please. And then he kind of, he throws a little trump card. He plays the impermanence card with the Buddha. 
He says, we don't know if you're going to die or if I'm going to die or how long you'll live or how long I'll live. Please teach me, teach me now. And so, you know, the Buddha says, no. And, but he has, you know, he's frustrated, but he's not going to let that stop him. And he asks the Buddha a third time and he agrees. The Buddha says, okay. But he just wants to give him a very brief teaching because he's hungry and he wants to go get his lunch before it gets too late and he can't eat. You know, these considerations are important if you're a teacher. So, so um, he gives him this, the most succinct teaching. You ready? Here it is. In the seen, simply what is seen. In the heard, simply what is heard. In the sensed, the felt, the sensed, simply what is sensed. In the cognized, simply what is cognized. Actually, I'll read you right from the sutta. He says, he says, actually, he says it this way, and it's important to hear. Bahia, train yourself thus. In the seen will be merely what is seen. In the heard will be merely what is heard. In the sensed will be merely what is sensed. In the cognized will be merely what is cognized. In this way, you should train yourself, Bahia. And so this is our training, to be with things as they are in their simplicity. Slowly moving down, as we learn to embrace everything, let everything come and go, what will happen is consciousness will begin to refine and we'll be able to taste, touch, smell, know things in their immediacy, in their simplicity, in the scene, just the scene. And you can even now, as you're looking, just see, there's just seeing happening. Or if you notice the hearing, there's just hearing happening. And then he goes on to say, when Bahia, you, for you in the scene is merely what is seen, etc., etc., then Bahia, you will not be with that. When Bahia, you are not with that, then you will not be in that. When Bahia, you are not in that, then Bahia, you will not, neither be here, nor there, nor in between. Just this is the end of suffering. Just this is the end of suffering. Not here, not there, not in between. Just a sound, a sight, a smell, a taste, a touch. Just this moment. Let's sit for a minute, please. practice here together. May we offer it gladly, the blessing, fruit, goodness of our practice. May we offer it freely for the benefit of all. May it go out in ripples, like ripples in water, touching beings in this world and every world. 
May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering, free from the distress, dissatisfaction, pain of war, of division, of racism, of ignorance, of confusion and greed, of violence of any kind. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings awaken. May we awaken together. May we discover the freedom of letting everything come and everything go. May all beings be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.